The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Amen. So Luke chapter 9, uh, typically we have you stand and, and read it together. Um, this morning I think that this is such a gripping narrative that I kind of just want to take it as it comes. We're going to just look at it verse by verse and let the story kind of unfold uh, itself. So um, we're going to primarily be in Luke, Luke chapter 9. I'll have you guys turn here and there. You know, one of the hardest and most interesting things about becoming a Christian uh, and growing as a Christian is this, this thing that you start to realize that, that you're no longer at home in this world. You guys know what I mean by that? Uh, you get saved and you start to realize that the things that you used to enjoy as a non-Christian become a lot less enjoyable. You can never really sin the way that you used to. <laughs> Once you, once you get saved, it's, it's like the world sort of loses some of its shimmer, kind of loses some of its sparkle when, when you're awakened to the reality of who God is. Um, the reason for that is because you're a new creation. The Bible talks about regeneration. It's this idea that as Christians, we get born again, that we, our old man or old woman goes to death and we are born as a new being. Uh, there's a movie that I watched just recently. I don't know, it came out a few years, maybe 10 years ago or so, but there's a movie I just watched that really, I feel like gave a really cool picture of this. And it's a movie called Upside Down. And this movie, it's really, it's an interesting premise. It's kind of this Romeo and Juliet um, spinoff, but it's, it's, it's this other reality, basically. And then there's these two planets, and these planets are, are really close. They're maybe like a mile um, from each other. They're so close that they actually share an atmosphere, but each planet has its own set of gravity. Can we throw up this, this slide here and kind of get a picture? So this is like these two planets. Can you get the idea? And they're living on top of each other. Um, and each planet, again, has its own set of gravity. And each planet has its own set of people. And whoever is born on one planet, their body remains true to the gravity for their planet. So even though they probably could climb up into the other planet, their gravity is always pulling them back to the other planet. And so the, the movie's kind of an interesting plot. Uh, he falls in love with someone that's on the other planet, and the only way he can get over to that planet is to take what's called inverse matter, which is the material from the other planet, and to, to, to put it like weights on his body so that he can basically walk what's kind of like on the ceiling, basically. But the premise is super interesting, and that is that, that whatever planet you're born on, your, your gravity, your sense of gravity stays true to that planet. And, and you can't really escape that. Okay? You can't really uh, move away from that. There's one more slide too, just to get the, kind of get the picture in, in your head in these, these two cities. Um, so the, the idea is this, is that when you are, you are a believer, you are actually transferred from one kingdom to another kingdom. You, your, your DNA when you were born is born into this physical realm. I'm talking about the, the Bible and I'm talking about reality, okay, not the movie. This is just a helpful um, example. But uh, you're born into this reality. When you get saved, your DNA as a person spiritually changes, and you're born into another kingdom. And everything about you now no longer fits with this world. And everything about you is being pulled up. Everything about you, your physicality, your spirituality, all of it is being pulled to this other kingdom where things make sense, where things work. I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but as a Christian, the longer I live on this earth, the more I am ready to get off of it. Not because creation is evil, not because uh, we, we believe that spiritual is good and physical is bad, but because I've been reborn and I've been given a new appetite and a new nature and everything in me wants to be where Jesus is. And everything in me is not able to be content here separated physically from the Father. It, it, it aches. And as Christians, you know, I used to have this idea that as a Christian, as I would go uh, through the Christian life, I would just get more and more comfortable because I would just get more and more, you know, faith-filled and more and more just spiritually awesome. But I've actually found the opposite. The longer I live on this earth as a Christian, the more uncomfortable I get. Like a baby in the womb where the, the womb just starts to get tight and the baby needs to get out because it wasn't designed to live in that womb. That's the way Christians are. We were born again, and we were designed to live in another reality other than this one. We were born to live in an eternal reality with a perfect and true God, and instead we're limited by this physical world that has fallen and cursed. Does everybody get that? So this morning's teaching is, is a part two to last week. Hopefully you guys were here last week. If you weren't here, um, 
Oh, you can't even go listen to it because the recording didn't work. But essentially, uh, Pastor Jeremy, unfortunately, Pastor Jeremy taught uh, one of the coolest passages in Luke chapter 9. And, th- and that is this moment where what I just talked about is seen firsthand. This idea of these two worlds, okay? Um, because Jesus and uh, three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, they, they go up this hill to pray. Nothing special about the hill, by the way. Okay, some people think there's, you know, magical power. No, there's nothing special about the hill. But they go up the hill, and in this moment, Jesus chooses to share something with them. Share something that they really didn't even fully understand. He chose to share with them this, this theological reality that Jesus is, yes, fully God, or yes, fully man, but he's also fully God. That he added his humanity into his divinity. Now, it's not as though Jesus was just wearing some kind of skin suit. It's not that, as though he was a spirit being, you know, just indwelling some skin suit. He was fully man. He experienced everything that men experience. But within his humanity, he still maintained his deity. And when they go up this hill, in this moment, the, the disciples are sleeping. Uh, and, and, and they wake up, and all of a sudden, Jesus is glowing. Which brings readers' minds, probably in Jewish minds, into the Old Testament when it talks about uh, the Lord, uh, the glorious God, who is so holy and so radiant that he's radioactive, right? And Jesus is glowing. Why is he glowing? He's not glowing because he transformed into something. He's glowing because his humanity has been peeled back for a minute, and his deity is bursting out. The curtain of his flesh is pulled back, and you're seeing Jesus in his true, in, in his resurrected, his glorified body for a moment. It's this amazing, amazing transcendent moment. See, Jesus is unique in that, just like our example here, Jesus is able to function in both realms. He's spirit, he is God, but he inhabited flesh, so he's both. And in this moment, they're seeing Jesus' deity come out. I just nerd out on that. Like, that's crazy. And, you know, Peter does the wrong thing, and he says the wrong thing, and it shuts the glory show down, um, and God the Father shows up, and he just, he just pinpoints the preeminence of Christ as the, 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 the chief apostle, as the, the, the ultimate man. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, okay? Now, it's important that we read the text that we're going to look at this morning uh, in connection to that moment. It's not meant to be read in separation to that moment because that moment was a moment of transcendence. What that moment was, it was a little peek into the glorified kingdom. It was a little peek into what heaven is going to look like and what our glorified bodies are going to look like. Just like the resurrection, it was this little, this little hint as to the future kingdom to come. And what's significant about this, though, is that they didn't stay on the hill. They came down. And metaphorically there, okay, Jesus didn't stay in that moment of transcendence. He didn't stay in that moment where the Father was there and Moses and Elijah were there and his deity was bursting out. He chose to go down the hill back into the brokenness and the hurt and the pain of humanity. And what we get to look at this morning is the part two of what happened on the mountain, and that is the descending into the valley and what that looks like. And I don't know about you guys, but what it looks like for him to go down the valley looks exactly like my life. It's one mistake after another that Jesus is having to watch the disciples do. He goes from this amazing moment in the presence of the Father to down the hill and his disciples messing up one thing after another thing after another thing. He comes down the hill into a perfect example of just how broken humanity is and just how in need we are of what was on the top of the hill to come down. So this morning, our outline is going to be this. We're going to look at four things that Jesus came down the hill to, okay? And I'm going to put these up so you can write them down, and this is going to be our working outline. So four things that Jesus came down the mountain to. The first thing he came down to is the world oppressed by darkness, Jesus comes from this transcendent place down into the world oppressed by darkness. Number two, he comes down into his disciples limited by faithlessness. And then number three, he comes down into his followers choosing ignorance. And number four, he comes down into his leaders consumed with covetousness. What a contrast (laughs) to go from this transcendent moment where Jesus is a a taste and a glimpse of future glory to come down the mountain and be faced with the reality of this broken world. 
And so this morning, you guys, this is not an opportunity for us to look at the disciples and say, wow, what a bunch of boneheads. This is an opportunity for you and I to go, everything that I see in the disciples, I see in myself. And everything I see in Christ is what I want to see in myself. There's beauty in this contrast. Uh, By the way, all three synoptic gospel writers, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all put this story that we're going to look at, actually the, 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 the group of stories, they, put, they all put them right directly after the ascension. And I think the reason for that is because the gospel writers are trying to get us to see the difference between the brokenness of the now and the future healing of what's coming. Okay? So let's just dive right in. If you, can, if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse 37. So the humanity oppressed by darkness is the first thing Jesus comes into. Look at verse 37. On the next day, okay, so next day from what? The next day from the transfiguration, okay? Uh, and by the way, some, some commentators actually think that the transfiguration happened at night uh, because it, it just kind of makes sense, uh, and it'd be easier to see Jesus glowing if it was at night. So uh, the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Okay, so Jesus just, again, comes from this amazing transcendent moment down the mountain with his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and as they're just hitting the valley floor, they are immediately, their ears and their senses are immediately greeted by chaos. (laughs) They're immediately greeted by humanity and the fallenness of human beings. And Jesus sees this crowd coming, and this crowd, other synoptics tell us, this crowd is running towards him. It's almost like a race to see who can get to him first. Is coming running towards him. And basically what's been happening is while Jesus and his disciples have been on the mountain having their little retreat, the other disciples have been down trying to run the shop and doing a really bad job. I don't know if you guys ever had an experience like this, but you ever be like new at a, at a store and you're working in retail and you've only been there like two days and you don't know how to fix the cash register and you don't know where anything's at and you don't know how to answer anyone's questions and your manager's like, hey, I'm going to lunch. And you're like, oh, okay, I hope nothing breaks, you know. Ten minutes later, you're calling them, and they're screaming in the background, and you're like, everyone hates me, and it's, I just, everything broke, and I can't give this guy a refund. I mean, I've had moments like that where my manager left, and I didn't know anything, and now I'm stuck here, and that's exactly what's happening here, okay? The disciples still have their training wheels on, okay? They have no idea how to function and walk by faith, and, and they're, they're, they're down there, and while Jesus is on the hill, chaos breaks loose, Absolute chaos. The other Gospels tell us that the scribes were there, and the scribes were sort of the theologians um, of Judaism in that day, okay, the religious elite, and the scribes uh, were always there. They were always there, and they were there to try to destroy the ministry of Christ because they hated Christ, and they didn't want him upstaging them. And it says the scribes were there arguing with the disciples, so there's that going on. There's a massive crowd of people probably expecting a meal, maybe expecting a miracle. They show up, and they go, where's the headliner? Why are we stuck with the opening band? We came to hear the lead guy. Why is the associate preaching, right? Where is the, where's the lead guy? Where's he at? Where's Jesus? We came to see him, and now all we got is these buffoons. We got these nine other guys, and the best ones are even went up the mountain, right? That's what Jesus comes into. And as he comes down the hill, this mob comes towards him, and as the mob is coming towards him, um, one man seems to single out of the crowd. It's almost like he beats the crowd to Jesus, and he falls down before Christ, and, and, and he, he, he literally, and listen to what he says, on the next day they had come down the mountain, the great crowd met him, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out, and it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. What an intense scene Jesus comes into. Not only does he come into this chaotic situation, he comes into a situation where a man has a son who is being demon, demonically oppressed and has been so for a really long time. So when you put Again, this story is in all three synoptic gospels. So when you put all the pieces together, this is kind of a a snapshot of what this young boy, what this young man has been going through and what this father is coming, bringing to Jesus in hopes for it to be healing. Here's some of the things that's been going on in this young boy's life. Uh, It says, the spirit throws him to the ground in convulsion. So he's trying to go through life and every so often, 
very often actually, uh, this, the spirit comes upon him and just throws him on the ground and he begins foaming at the mouth. And the boy grinds his teeth and he becomes stiff as a board. He has no control, he has no power. This demon has complete control and power over him. And, verse, uh, and the third thing, the spirit has tried many times to kill him. This demonic spirit isn't just trying to maim him, isn't just trying to wound him, it's trying to destroy him. And by the way, that's what Satan is out to do. He's not out to maim you. He's not out to cripple you. He's not out to give you a limp. He doesn't want you to get, he doesn't want you to fall to temptation so that you maybe don't run your race as fast as you could. He wants you destroyed completely. That's his hope. And his hope for this boy is to destroy him. And it says specifically that what happens when this boy gets attacked is that he tr- the demon tries to kill him by throwing himself into the fire and throwing himself into the water because that's how Satan thinks. He wants the destruction of anyone who bears the image of God. He covered, he's covered with scars and bruises from these attacks. Okay? They've been, begin to pile up over the years as he continually gets attacked. His body is it's taken a toll on him. Even as a young man, he's, he's so demolished by this demon. The spirit has made him unable to hear or speak, it tells us. He, he's like stuck in a cage. He can't even explain what he's going through. He can't even cry out for help because he's so bound by this demon that he can't even talk. He's trapped in a shell of a body, unable to communicate. And this has gone on his whole life. Jesus asks in one of the other gospels, he says, how long has this been going on? He says, since he was a young man. So his whole life, he's been dealing with this, struggling with this, and the demon hardly ever leaves him, and the demon is intent on the destruction of this boy. This is the reality that Jesus walks into. Now, there's a lot of people that would like to say, this isn't demonic, this is just epilepsy. Okay, there's, there's commentators and different people out there that, that would like to diminish the demonic realm because it's kind of weird and we don't know what to think of it and say, no, 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 this isn't demonic. This is, this is just physiological. Okay, but here's the problem with that. Number one, Luke is a doctor. Do you know that? The, the, Luke's gospel written by a physician, a really good one. He's a doctor, and he doesn't say anything about this being epilepsy necessarily. He ties it to a spiritual reality. And Jesus is, you know, God. And he doesn't seem to think it's just a physical thing either. There's obviously something more going on here than just some kind of a physical problem. And, and, and Jesus walks in and knows exactly what the issue is. He knows exactly what needs to happen. And that is that there is a demonic spirit living in and consuming this boy like a leech, sucking the life out of him, trying to destroy him. This fallen angel, this spirit being, this, 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 this person commanded by Satan who wants to destroy needs to be cast out. Now, don't be too quick, by the way, just a side note. Don't be too quick to try to separate the physical from the spiritual. Okay? You know, Jesus hates it all. He hates the fact that your body is painful. He hates the fact, he, you know how I know that? Because he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. He hates death. He hates disease. And he hates the demonic realm. And he sees them both as the enemy. He doesn't over-separate them. Now, we can take that too far and start casting the demons out of everything, right? But at the same time, understand that the reality of the demonic and the spiritual realm is more real than the one that we see. We only see in a few dimensions. God lives in a lot more than that. And Jesus instantly knows that the issue is more than just some kind of physical thing. It's a spiritual problem. Now, what's the, why is this happening? Okay, before we get into the next part is, why is this happening? Why, why is it that, that even though Jesus is present, this boy is given over to this demonic oppression? And here's, here's what I want to unpack really quick. The reason this is happening is because, as the Bible says, there are two kingdoms. There are two kingdoms, two economies operating simultaneously. There is a preeminent sovereign kingdom economy, and that is God's kingdom. And then by God's allowance, there is underneath that what I would call a sub-kingdom, a sub-economy that is sub-sovereign to God. And Satan, um, he's one of the people that God has allowed temporarily to rule this sub-kingdom. 
And the Bible very, very clearly distinguishes that we live in a world that is two worlds. It's not physical things are evil and spiritual things are good because demons and Satan are spiritual. It's whatever is ruled by God is under his servant, sovereign kingdom, and whatever is being temporarily allowed to be ruled by Satan is this other kingdom. Okay, you see this all throughout the Bible, and it's really, it's really easy to see. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 3 through 5 up on the screen here. This is what Paul says about this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God, little g, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, you could read that and go, wait a minute, I thought that Jesus, I thought the Lord, I thought Yahweh was the king, the God of the world. What does that mean, okay? But here's what you need to understand about that word world. That is, there is two primary words for world in the Greek language. The first one is this, and it's called aeon. A-I-O-N, aeon. And what aeon essentially means is it is an age. It is a time, period, it's not world as in all of the created things. Aeon simply means a temporary age or cycle of time. So when Jesus says the words, you are not of this world, what do you think he's talking about? Aeon. You're not, you don't belong to this subcategory of reality here. You don't belong to this temporary age. You belong to the other Greek word, which is cosmos. All created things, all universally, all things. God is sovereign over cosmos, all things, and he has given for a temporary period of time, he has given rule and authority over aeon, the age, the world. So when Jesus walks down from the mountain, from his transcendent moment with the Father on the mountain, he is walking in back behind enemy lines into the aeon, the age of this world that is ruled temporarily by Satan. Does that make sense? And Satan is not the ultimate authority or the ultimate power, but does he have power? Yes, he does. All he can do to you as believers is lie to you, and he's really good at it. But over the physicality of this world, he has been given quite a bit of power, and he is blinding this world. Why is there so many false religions? Because there is a temporary God of this world, little g, little w who has been given authority temporarily. And Jesus has stepped into that realm, into that economy. Why? To go to war. To go to war for what? For the cosmos, for all of it. For God so loved the world, cosmos, all of it. Not just you and I, but everything. All of creation is subjected to this temporary rule of this age. And all of it, you better believe, all of it is going to be restored to the rightful king. This is the reality that Jesus is stepping into, and he's very aware of this. The reason Jesus walks around casting out demons is because in his kingdom, there are none. And wherever Jesus goes, we get glimpses of what his kingdom is going to look like. So the first thing that Jesus walks into is a world oppressed by darkness, okay? That's the first thing Jesus walks down the hill. He goes from this transcendent moment to this world that is oppressed by the ruler of this age, that's the first thing. The second thing, if you're taking notes, the second thing Jesus walks into is his disciples' limited faithfulness. Or I'm sorry, his, disciple, his disciples limited by faithlessness. So we have this boy, he's demon-possessed. The father runs up in verse 40. And listen to what he says to Jesus. He says, I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They could not. Now that's really interesting. Flip back a page to the beginning of Luke chapter 9. We just studied this. Chapter 9, verse 1. Listen to what Jesus says to the disciples, just, just maybe even days before. He says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over some demons? No, wait, that's not what it says. He called the twelve together and he gave them power and authority over all demons. He gave them power and authority over all demons. So you need to understand that. That Jesus had commissioned these guys and given them power. Not power of their own, but gave them access to his power. To walk by faith, he gave them power over all demons. And here we are a few days later while Jesus is up having his retreat with his guys. And these guys have no access to that power. They swipe their card and it gets declined. Why? Why do they have 
Why do they have no power? Why, why can't they cast this demon out? Jesus told them they could do it. Now, I got to tell you, before we go on, I, I really resonate with these guys, man. I don't know about you. I don't go, oh, you, you idiots. You just, you should, why didn't you just cast out the demon? I go, man, this is like every day for me. It's like every day for me, God says, I give you all things you need for life and godliness, and I wake up and go, Lord, I just can't do it. I messed up again. It's like I gave you my Holy Spirit. I've given you my perfect word. I'm with you. I'm walking with you. I'm strengthening you. I'm there with you in the weakness. I've given you everything that you need, and I'm constantly like the disciples saying, I can't do it. I'm sorry. And it's not because he hasn't given me what I need. It's because I forgot my PIN number. It's not, that, it's not that he didn't put money in the bank account, and when I went to swipe my card, it got declined. It's that these disciples have forgotten how to access the power that was granted to them in order to cast out this demonic force. They don't know what they're doing. Now, Jesus answers the question as to why they can't cast out the demon, and he answers it in verse 41. By the way, just a side note on this. <laughs> uh, how true is the Bible? I mean, wh- who writes down their screw-ups like that? You think, like, people think the disciples fabricated all this stuff? You think they would record this? That Jesus was up on a hill with the three guys that seemed to be the preferred ones, and they couldn't cast out the demon? I don't think they would write that down. I think most, most historians, if they're being honest, would agree. The disciples, the Bible's very honest about the weakness of man and, 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 and about their own weakness. I mean, Mark was basically Peter's epistle, and Mark tears up Peter. I mean, there's some, there's some validity to that. But why couldn't they cast out the demon? Uh, look at verse 41. Jesus actually explains why they couldn't cast out the demon. He says, I begged your disciples to cast him out, but they couldn't. In verse 41, Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted, some translations say perverse, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? How long? Bring your son to me. So Jesus' response to their inability to heal, he points out three things. The first thing is, is he calls them generation. Okay? And by the way, I don't think Jesus, I, I really don't think this was Jesus like, seeing that his disciples failed and then going, oh, faithless generation. I don't think that's what's happening. I think this is a moment where Jesus is going, faithless, perverse generation. Almost like under his breath. Just not frustrated, not angry, but just kind of like, Lord, what do I do here? What do I do here? Jesus is, Jesus is a, a, a person not just because he became a man. God is not a force. God is a, a person. I, I just want you to think about this too. This isn't the main point, but just think about this. The language that he uses, perverse generation, is the exact language that God used in Deuteronomy and in Exodus when the Israelites could just not seem to get it right. Remember Mo? He went up the mountain, came down. He had this amazing moment where the glory of God was shining on him and he was glowing and he got the law and everything is awesome. He has this transcendent moment just like Jesus on the mountain. And what does he come down to? Paganism. <laughs> they made a calf. Just like, just like, just like uh, Egypt. And God says specifically, and I think we even have the slide. I'm skipping ahead, but in Deuteronomy 32, Verse 4, the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without, in, in, without iniquity, just, just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. Who? The Israelites. There are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are crooked and twisted generation. It's the same language there. The same exact language that Jesus is using. He, why is he using it? Because he and the Father are one. Understand that? This is the Trinitarian theology of Christians. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. And the Spirit gets grieved too, doesn't it? It says we can grieve the Holy Spirit. God is a, he's a person. Jesus didn't leave all of the attributes and personality of God when he became a man. He kept them. He maintained them. And Jesus is sitting there just like the Father going, oh, how long am I going to bear with you, Israel? How long am I going to bear with you, disciples? How long until you're just going to believe me? He's going to trust me. Now, back in our text in, Ch- in, in Luke, 
He says, wicked, he says faithless and, and twisted generation. I want to talk about that word generation. That is the Greek word genea. And I want to un- unpack that because I want to ask the question, who is he talking about here? Some people think when he says you faithless and twisted generation, some people think, oh, he's talking about the crowds. No, he's not talking about the crowds. It's pretty clear he's talking about the disciples because they're the ones that can't cast out the demon. But it's important to understand that word genea, it doesn't just mean the people in front of him. He's talking about something bigger here. It means humanity. It means the race of men. It's really important that you understand that. It's the race or family which is tied back to Adam. It's our humanity. So yes, it's in that moment, it's manifest through the disciples and their unbelief, but ultimately, he's frustrated with the unbelief of humanity because it's humanity that ate the, the, the fruit in the garden. It's humanity that would put him on the cross. It's humanity that couldn't get it right, even with the Mosaic law. It's humanity that had, did, not have what was in, did not have what it took to just simply be in a covenant with a perfect God. It's humanity that he is grieved with, not towards in an angry way, but in a way that our God has emotion. Aren't you glad we serve a God that has emotion? That has feeling? He's not just some, some force up in heaven who's just, who's just like a ball of fire. That's not Jesus. That's not God. He's a person. Now, he identifies their lack of ability to heal specifically with two things. The first thing is with their faithlessness. He says, you have no faith. That's why you can't heal. Matthew's account gives a little bit more of an explanation um, as to why, and this is the same story in Matthew. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? They want to know. I would want to know too. Hey, swipe my card and nothing happened. You said we could cast out the demons. We tried and nothing happened. Um, The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. How little is it? I wonder. Well, for truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, implication, you don't even have enough, you don't even have faith the size of a mustard seed. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? It's very small. They don't even have that much. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. The point of this isn't to say that if you just had a little mustard seed, then you can control God and do all these crazy things. The point is, is he says, I am so powerful, and if you would just realize your smallness, for one second, and have faith even the size of a mustard seed, you can move a mountain. That was not some kind of encouraging thing for us to go win touchdowns in a football game. What Jesus is saying is, you could do kingdom work to great degrees if you would actually just believe that I am who I said I am. You faithless generation. You just don't believe it. You guys don't. Why couldn't they cast out the demon? Because of this. They couldn't cast out the demon because faith is not a power. It is an understanding of your lack of power and a belief in the reality of his power. That's why they couldn't cast it out. They couldn't cast it out because, as Kent Hughes says, and this actually nails it, he says this. He says their problem was that they had subtly moved from trust in God to faith in the process, which is to say faith in themselves. This is what happened with the disciples, okay? Because they cast out demons before this. It's recorded. They were casting out demons. They were able to have power over this realm of darkness. All of a sudden, they can't. And the reason they can't is because they switched in their mindset from leaning into the power of God into leaning into themselves. They began to trust the process rather than God himself. Man, can I relate with that. You know, one of the most frustrating things in the world for me is preaching. I love preaching. I absolutely love it. When I, when I know I'm going to preach, I'm just thinking and thinking and thinking about my sermon. I just meditate this moment. I can't wait to share the word with you guys. It's one of my favorite things to do. You know what, one of the most frustrating things in the world for me to do? Preach. You know why? Because I can't control the spirit. And I hate that. I have been wrestling for years with methods on how to preach the most effectively. And as soon as I think I get it, I lose it. I go, oh, okay, here's what I do. Here's how I get my notes. You just have this amount of examples and this amount of analogies and you, you, know, you just teach in this way and maybe I'll just, I'll learn this lesson and then that lesson and those things are helpful but as soon as I get up to the pulpit and think, yeah, I got it. I know how to do this. Debit card declined. Not because God doesn't have power to speak through me prophetically from the pulpit 
but because I have forgotten that it is not about my process and my ability, it's about his power. And this is what happened in this moment with the disciples. They forgot that it was in their dependence on Christ that they would conquer the enemy, not in their processes. They probably thought, this will be easy. We'll just walk up. We'll pray the same prayer we prayed last time, and the demon will be cast out. It doesn't work like that. God wants us in a place of absolute dependency every day. And as soon as you start to think you got it figured out, I just wake up, I read my Bible in the morning, I turn on a podcast on the way to work, and I'm good for the day. Eh, No, that may have worked once. It's not going to work tomorrow. Because God does not want you in a place where you're trusting in a process or a pastor or a book or a theology more than you're trusting in the person of Christ. He wants you leaning into him every second of every day. That's where he wants you to be at. That's what it means to grow up as a Christian. It means to become more and more dependent. Like our pastor says, like Jeff says, you grow up to become more of a dependent. Unlike our kids, which we want them to grow up to become less dependent. This is the Christian life. And they had forgotten this. And it's not limited simply to the disciples. This is a human problem, a human issue that you and I face constantly. But he doesn't just say they're faithless. He also says they're twisted, (laughs) perverse. He says, you're faithless and you're perverse. And that word, it, it carries all kinds of sexual connotations, right? Like perverse, what does that mean? They're perverts? You can't cast out the, the, the demons because you're a pervert? No, that's not what he's, he's saying. He's actually saying you've perverted the truth. You've twisted the truth. Look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, I love that verse because what it implies is that we know it. It implies that humanity knows the truth because in order to suppress something or twist something or pervert something, you need to know what it is. So we know what the truth is. The problem is we don't want it. We don't like it as humans. This, I can't think of it, can't possibly think of a better example of this in our, our, our culture at large right now. And our culture has absolutely no problem at all with faith. They love faith. Faith is great. You can have all the faith that you want. You know what they have a problem with? Truth. You can believe all you want. Just don't tell me that something's true. Because <laughs> once you say something is true, that becomes offensive. We have to leave the door wide open. Complete universalism. Everyone and what everyone believes is probably true somehow. Okay, we don't live in that kind of universe. We just don't. We live in a, a universe of absolute truths. And all we can do as humans is either believe God or twist what God has said. And human beings are doing one of two things. They're either believing God and submitting and reorienting to what he has said is true, or we're twisting it into cults and other religions and other forms of belief. Atheism is a faith. It takes faith to be an atheism. It takes faith to be a secular universalist. It takes faith to be a, a, a secular humanist. You have to believe, no matter what you do in life, you have to believe something. Okay? What Jesus is saying here is he's saying you can't cast out the demon, number one, because you don't have faith, and number two, because you have twisted and perverted my truth to the point where you are confused. You're confused. You're not walking in the word of what I said. You're not believing what I told you, and you're not doing it in the way that I told you to do. That is what is being said here. He says in Mark 9.29, this is the, the, the synoptic account, he said, he said to them, this kind, okay, the demon that we're looking at here, this kind of demon, which is interesting because um, apparently there's different kinds. Uh, he said to them, this kind of demon cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And one other, one other uh, some of the other um, translations uh, translate it prayer and fasting. Now, I, lo- I love this, and I brought this up because what I want you to see here is the reason they couldn't cast out the demon was because they were no longer oriented to God's reality. They had twisted God's reality, and they were wa- operating in their own. And the reason Jesus tells them in Mark's account that the only way they could cast this demon out is to pray and fast is because, listen, both prayer and fasting are reorienting ourselves to him. You know that's what prayer is? It's not him that's changing. You're not changing God when you pray. You're changing You're orienting to his perfect will. Fasting, it's the same thing. It's a way of taking your physicality and saying, I want to submit my physicality to God's power. 
Both those things, that's what they do. You ever have that moment where you're praying and at first you're frustrated and you feel like you're just going through the motions and then you hit that point in prayer where all of a sudden you get it? Oh, Lord, you're God. I feel so much better. Why is that? Because prayer orients you back to the truth of who God is. And that was what was missing here in the disciples' inability to cast out the demon. Verse 41. And while he was coming, who? The, the kid, okay. The kid. So while, while the, the disciples were unable to cast him out, Jesus says, bring him to me. And while the kid is coming, verse 41. Verse, I'm sorry, verse 42. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. Why did the demon throw him to the ground? Because the demon's got one last chance to destroy this kid before he gets to the one who can heal him. Okay, mark my words. There will never be a time where Satan will hit you harder than when you are running into the arms of Christ. If you want to draw fire from the enemy, run into the arms of Christ. Because Satan hates that. He wants you as far from Jesus as possible. He sees this kid running to the power and the sovereignty of Jesus, and he says, I'm going to take this kid down before he gets there. And as the demon is throwing this kid to the ground and convulsing him, Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Here's what I love about this. The disciples' faithlessness did not have the last word. Who had the last word? Christ. I'm so glad. If my faithlessness had the last word, we would be in trouble. I would be in trouble. Jesus takes up the slack and without even a thought, casts out this demon and heals this boy. Praise God for that. And what I want you to see here, Luke writes that after he did this, they were astonished. They marveled at him. That word astonished, it's the same, the word marveled is the same word that Peter uses in his, in his epistle when he describes the transfiguration. What Luke is trying to do here is he's trying to make you, you see the glory that was on the mountain? Now it's on the valley. There's nothing supernatural about the mountain. There's nothing supernatural about that retreat center you go to. There's nothing supernatural about, uh, about going out into the woods. You know, what, what, you know why when you're out in the woods you feel closer to God? Because there's less noise, less distraction. Jesus, the glory of God, has come down the mountain, and now the glory of God is no longer on the mountain, it's in the valley, which is pretty exciting. So, not only is Jesus coming down into a world oppressed by demons and darkness, not only is he coming down to his disciples that are limited by faithlessness, he's also coming down to, number three in, the, in our outline, his followers choosing ignorance. His followers choosing ignorance. It says in verse 43 in the second half of it, it says, But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. I love it when Jesus says stuff like that. Hey, I know that your, pro, your proclivity as a human is to let everything I say just puddle up here in the shallow part of your brain. Don't do that. Let it sink down into your soul. Because, guys, this matters. What I'm about to tell you matters. And I want you to notice, too, when he decides to tell them what he's about to tell them. He tells them while they're marveling. This is what good leaders do, okay? People that are down on the floor thinking about what just happened and how amazing it is. Jesus is up above that, and he's thinking, yeah, I know that's really cool that I just cast out that demon, but something actually really more important is coming, and I need to prepare you for that. You know, go ahead and rejoice. That's awesome. But, but don't forget, guys, that why I came here was not just to heal demons once. Why I came here was to go to the cross. He's preparing them for that. Look at what he says. He says, but while they were all marveling at everything... He was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, verse 44, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Oh, there's so much there I want to say, and we're running out of time. Quickly go to Daniel chapter 7. I want to talk about why Jesus calls himself, just briefly, why Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And the reason that this is worth going here for this is because I always wondered that, and I didn't learn until more recently, and it actually kind of blew my mind. That's, that's Jesus' favorite name for himself, is Son of Man. He calls himself it all the time, and I always got confused by that. I'm like, Jesus, if you're God, and if you're the Messiah, why are you always calling yourself the Son of Man? That kind of makes you sound like not God, right? You guys ever thought that? Am I the only one that's ever thought that? 
Why are you calling yourself the Son of Man? Well, here's why he's calling himself the Son of Man. Go to Daniel chapter 7. And starting in verse 9, and a little bit of context, Daniel just had a vision about four beasts, and each of those beasts represent a different world superpower, starting with the, ba- with the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And it's significant because it's talking about the power of this age. It's talking about the rule of this age. It's temporary rule. And then Daniel sees this vision. And this is like one of the coolest pieces of scripture in the whole Bible. So listen up. He sees this vision in the midst of all this temporary power. And he says in verse 9 of Daniel 7, As I looked, thrones were placed in the Ancient of Days. You might notice that that's all capitalized. Why is that? Because it's God the Father. Okay? The Ancient of Days is God the Father. The Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow. What does that sound like? Kind of sounds like the transfiguration. And the hair of his head was like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, and a stream of fire issued. You're like, what's with all the fire? That's talking about God's judgment, that God is going to come, and he's going to eradicate the earth of everything that has been plaguing it for all of these thousands of years. He's going to come in judgment. Verse 10, a stream of fire issued, came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. A ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Um, that's probably the Antichrist, but we don't, we're not going to get into that. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and time. What is that talking about? All of these beasts that actually are the empires of the world, all of the most powerful kings in the world, are going to be demolished because of the fire of the power of the ancient of days. It's going to consume everything. How exciting is that? And then look at this, verse 13, and listen up here. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like what? A son of man. Hmm. He came on the clouds. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Jesus said that he would come on the clouds. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Notice how much language there Jesus uses. Kingdom, clouds, son of man. What is Jesus doing? He is constantly calling himself the son of man. You can go back to Luke now. Because he wants everyone to understand that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy in the book of Daniel. That God the Father is giving all preeminence and all glory and all power over to the Son of Man who is Jesus Christ. Now why did I take you there other than the fact that I just nerd out on that? Uh, Because when Jesus says the Son of Man must be delivered unto man, I want you to understand how confusing that would be to a Jewish audience in the first century. To say, hey, remember that one in Daniel that the Ancient of Days gave all glory and dominion? He's going to be delivered up to human beings. And the word men there is anthropos. It means humanity. And humanity is going to kill him. Jesus just said the same thing uh, earlier in Luke chapter 9, except he said the Jews were going to kill him. And now he's saying humanity is going to kill him. He will be delivered up to humanity for the destruction of his earthly body. Delivered by whom? Partly he's going to be delivered by Judas, partly by Pilate, partly by Herod. But ultimately, you know who delivered Jesus up? This will blow your mind. The Father. The Father was the one to deliver up the Son of Man so that the Son of Man could atone for his bride. The Son of Man must be delivered. Now Jesus, guys, Jesus is laying like mind-blowing theology on these guys. And if they knew their Bibles, they would have seen it because Isaiah 53 says that's exactly what's going to happen. The Messiah is going to suffer. And he's going to suffer in order to redeem God's people. By his stripes we are healed. But the disciples are so thick, they don't see it. And why don't they see it? They don't see it because they don't want to see it. It's It's right there. Look at it. The Son of Man... It's going to be delivered. Let these words sing in your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand. Saying this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. 
and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. And you might say, that's confusing. In one sentence, it says God is concealing it from him, and then in the next sentence, it's saying that they didn't understand, and then in the next second sentence, it's saying they didn't want to ask. Well, it's really simple. God is withholding, uh, Jesus is withholding this truth from them because they're afraid to ask. Why are they afraid to ask? Because they are afraid of what he's going to say. You ever been afraid to ask somebody something because you didn't want to hear the answer? They don't want a suffering servant. They want a reigning king. Why? Because they don't understand their greatest need. They don't understand that their greatest need is not power and world sovereignty. Their greatest need is to be forgiven and to have their sins paid for. And they are missing out on one of the most profound theological truths in the universe because they don't want to know. I just thought of this verse this morning. It fits so well. Proverbs 25, 2. It says, It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search it out. What if the disciples had said, Jesus, we don't understand that. It doesn't make sense to me. What do you mean you're going to die? You're the son of man. The ancient of days is going to deliver you the kingdom. And I think that Jesus probably would have explained it. But he knew they didn't want to hear it, so he concealed it from them. At least that's how I read it. Now, I just want to say this. Beware of getting to the place in your Christian walk where you are not sitting at Christ's feet wanting to wring every last drop of truth from his lips. There is so much in here that we don't know yet. I don't ever want to get to a place where I go, eh, I've heard enough. I get it. I got John 3.16 memorized. God forbid we could miss something as beautiful. Jesus was sharing with them one of the deepest things that was on of his heart in that moment, and that was that he was going to suffer. He was confiding in his friends. He was saying, I need to go to the cross. And they, all they could think about was themselves. Look at the next section. So not only is uh, his followers choosing ignorance, but lastly, his leaders are consumed with covetousness. Now, this is, why, this is another reason why they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Jesus just shares the most severe thing on his mind, that he is going to be delivered up to men to be crucified and to drink the cup of wrath for the Father on our behalf, and the disciples start arguing about who's the best. Well, I cast out 20 demons. How many demons have you cast out? How big is your church? How big is your Bible study? How influential are you? I think I might be more influential. And why are they arguing about this? Probably because three of the guys just got picked to go be the teacher's pet and go up the hill with Jesus. And now they're probably kind of confused. Well, which one of us is going to be the greatest one? This is the lowest of the low of the valley right here. You see what I'm saying? Illustrated by man's constant desire for greatness, looking for it in the wrong places. It, it further illuminates the contrast between the mountain and the valley. These guys are so tangled up in the weeds of this fallen world that they can't even see that Jesus is right in front of them, and he's obviously the greatest one. It's like a bunch of high school kids sitting around in a circle with Michael Jordan arguing about who's the best basketball player. Well, I wonder who it is. I wonder who's going to be the greatest. Now, we give him a hard rap, but we all do the same thing, okay? Verse 47, but Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he says, okay. Uh, by the way, this is interesting. When it says that Jesus knew the reasoning of their hearts, that's not a plural word. I don't know why it changes it to plural, but the Greek word is singular. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their heart. You say, well, that's weird. It's the heart of humanity. It's the same thing he was talking about when he talked about the generation or being delivered up to men. It's this human issue, this human problem that traces all the way back to Adam that has been going for thousands of years. It's the same problem, the same reason they're arguing about who's the greatest is the same reason they can't heal the demon, is the same reason Jesus had to come to the earth in the first place because humanity has a sickness and it has a, it's at a DNA level. We inherited it from Adam, okay? Now, <clears throat> he says, he sees them arguing, he knows their hearts, and he says, I need to teach these guys a lesson. I'm not gonna scold them, but hey, can you bring me that 
kid right there. So bring this little kid up. Jesus is sitting down because that's what rabbis did when they taught. Jesus is sitting down. And this little kid comes up and he says, you see this kid? Listen to what he says. He took a child and he put him by his side, verse 48, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is Least, who is least among you all is the greatest. Because he was great. I wrote that down wrong. Okay, here's, here's what Jesus is doing. Okay, this is, this is called a step parallelism. Parallelism, that's what theologians call it. But Jesus is saying, I need to teach you a lesson here. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you what greatness is. Because what, <laughs> what Jesus doesn't do here is he doesn't scold them for wanting to be great. And that actually surprises me. When I read that and I go, oh, they're arguing about their greatness? I mean, you think Jesus is going to walk into the room and light him up. Are you kidding me, you guys? You're arguing about your greatness? I just lit up on a mountain. I just cast out a demon. You're arguing about who's the greatest? That's not what Jesus does. He, he sits down. He grabs a child. And he says, let me reorient your idea of what greatness is. Because, listen, I actually don't think it's wrong that you and I have this intrinsic desire to be great. I think that was planted there because you were made in the image of God. God made Adam with a desire to do great things, a desire to grow and to learn, and to strive as human beings. That's planted in us. That is not an evil thing. What is evil is when you begin to satisfy that really deep need to be great with anything and everything other than Christ. That is where it becomes wrong. So Jesus, he makes this example. He says, here, look at this, this child. Let me give you the ultimate example here of greatness. This child is the greatest. And they're going, what? Now, in our culture, that's not weird at all because we worship our kids, right? We do. I mean, they're little idols. We live our life for our kids. And so in our culture, we're like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Kids are great. No. Understand the context that Jesus is saying this in. He's saying this into a context in the first century where kids were the lowest on the socioeconomic scale. Okay. Kids meant nothing, not until they grew up. People had kids so that they could have retirement, so that their kids could take care of them. People had kids so they could work in the fields. I'm not saying they didn't love their kids. I'm not saying they didn't enjoy their children. I'm just saying that, that culturally, there was no kid-centric homes. Kids were the least valued and the least prominent and the least important person in the culture. And Jesus takes a kid and he says, this kid is how I am going to be represented. And then he does something interesting. He says, and in the way that this kid represents me, I represent the Father. That's why it's called a step parallelism, because what Jesus is doing is he's saying, like I will be, I will be seen in the weakness and the humility of a child, God the Father is seen in the fact that I am a human being right now instead of being in heaven in power. What Jesus is saying is if you want to be great, greatness means becoming nothing so that all the glory goes to the Father exactly like Jesus did. I'm going to become a human being and become a servant so that all attention is drawn up to the Father. Not because Jesus wasn't God, but because that's how the Trinity works. They're all about each other, okay? That's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, I'll reorient what your idea of greatness is. And your idea of greatness should not be about yourself. Your idea of greatness should be rooted in who the Father is. Just a side note, and... It's, it's hilarious to me that our culture sits high and mighty thinking about how we value children and how we value people that are poor and people that are less fortunate and think that that came anywhere from anywhere other than Christianity. You think that came out of evolution? Do you understand that before Jesus, people didn't talk like this? Don't let this, don't let this get past your Western brain, okay? Th this did not happen. Jesus was completely cutting across the cultural grain here. People didn't take kids and say, hey, be like this. This is the most important person in the room right now. And they're going, wait, I thought I was. No, this kid is. People didn't say that. This is an honor-shame culture. The disciples are arguing about their greatness because this is the culture they live in. This is how the rabbis function. This is how the Greco-Roman world functioned. It's all about showing who, how great you are and how powerful you are and building yourself up. And Jesus, for the, really one of the first times in history, says, let me just flip that upside down and let me say, actually, the weakest are the most valuable. Now, our high and mighty culture 
says, we value the poor, we value the hurting. Where did they get that? They sure didn't get it from secular humanism. They sure didn't get it from evolution. They got it from Christ. Jesus introduced this idea. Jesus introduced the idea of exalting the weak. And this is exactly what John the Baptist said, when I must decrease that he may increase. Jesus is reorienting their idea of what greatness is. That's why Paul the Apostle could say, I will forsake everything to know Christ. All of my power, all of my prestige, all that I was as a Pharisee, I set all of that aside because I see Christ as the infinite value in the universe and he is so much better than greatness. You know the greatest tool that you have in your tool belt to witness to, your, to, to, to non-Christians? It's your satisfaction in God. It's the fact that you don't need stuff from this world. Jesus is taking what has been built into them as a human, this longing to be great, this longing to do things that are amazing, this longing to be valuable. He's, he's taking that thing that he put there that's been fallen and shattered, and he's restoring it, and he's saying, if you want to be great, then be satisfied in me. Because greatness does not look like worshiping self. Greatness looks like worshiping the Father. And as Christians, the best way we can evangelize is to say, I don't need anything from this world. In fact, I don't need stature. I don't need greatness. I don't need to be thought of as amazing. All I need to be is like a child because all my worth and all my value is in heaven. And it's God. He is my value. People don't know what to think about that. When you don't need anything from this world, when you're not doing social justice things simply to feel good about yourself or to, to put another notch in your belt, but you're doing it simply because you love the Lord, people don't understand what to think about that. It blows their mind. And that's how we ultimately should be witnessing. Now, let me bring this all around to a close. I had three reasons, but I'm just going to look at one. What, what is the main reason that Jesus came down the mountain? Why didn't he just stay up there? He was in such an amazing place with the Father, and he chose to come down. I want to look at one verse, and then we'll close. Flip over to Mark chapter 15, verse 37. I want to answer this question, Mark 15, 37. I want to answer this question, why did Jesus come down? Why wouldn't he just stay up on the mountain? Why do you have to come down and deal with all this stuff? I was at a conference uh, here in town over at Cornerstone, um, and this, this guy's seminary professor came in and did a, a couple lectures, and he, he dropped this as just like a little side note in his teaching, and it just blew my mind. And I thought, I have to connect this. I have to show these guys this because it was so cool. And, and here, here's what it is. Here's what he pointed out. Why did Jesus have to come down the mountain? Here's why. In, in the book of Mark, at the very end, Jesus is on the cross. Okay, he's been delivered up to men, and he's a he, he, he takes his last breath. In verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Now what just happened on the cross was that all of the wrath of God towards man and sin and brokenness has been absorbed now by Christ and everything now has changed in that moment. Jesus says it is finished, verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Now, you guys have heard that before. This is a supernatural thing that happens. Jesus dies on the cross, and instantly the curtain that is now, has always separated the glory of God from his people is rent. This thick curtain is ripped right in half. Why? So the presence of God can now be experienced by his people. Because Jesus absorbed the, the, the disconnect between God and man on the cross. It's really cool, right? Jesus came down the mountain for more than just that, though. He didn't come down just so that you and I could get into the presence. Look at the next thing, the next verse. Right away, after the curtain has been torn, it says, when the centurion, what's a centurion? He's a Gentile, a non-Jew, pagan Jew, non-Jew. When the centurion who stood facing Jesus saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, on the lips of a Gentile, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. What just happened? In an instant, as soon as the veil was torn, a Gentile, which was, that's what we are, okay, instantly was able to understand and receive the gospel. 
And what this guy said at this lecture just blew my mind. He said, I, everyone always thinks about the veil being torn as, yay, now we get to get into the presence of God. And that's certainly true. But he said that I always think about it as the other way around. He said, I think about it like the veil has been torn so that the spirit and the holiness and the kabod and the power of God could get out onto the world and come to Medford, Oregon in 2018 and save all of us and bring the kingdom. I never thought about it that way. This is why Jesus came down the mountain. He came down the mountain not to bring us up the mountain, but to bring the mountain down to us. To bring the glory of the Father and the things that all make sense and the, the place that we were designed to live as Christians to bring it down to this world and permeate the world. Jesus says, you want to know what the kingdom of God is like? It's like a seed that goes into the ground. He's talking about his body. And when that seed goes into the ground, it's going to create a plant. And that plant is going to consume the whole earth. That's the gospel. How, how cool is that? How cool is that? That Jesus had to come down the mountain so that he could bring what was on the mountain down to us. And you're saying, what? What do I do with that? You do what Jesus did. I mean, I, I want to be on the top of the mountain, right? I want to be in glory. That's where I want to be. That's what Paul said. He said, I'd rather be in heaven, but... He was torn. He said, I'd rather be in, with the Father in heaven, but at the same time, it's needful that I be here for the same reason that it was needful that Jesus came down into the valley because we need to bring this kingdom reality into the brokenness of this world. And we need to be kingdom outposts, cities on a hill, lights in the dark so that people can see that this, this existence is not it. It is ruled by a king that is not the king and it is temporary and it is for an age. Father, I just pray this morning that you would use us for that. Jesus, I thank you that you truly were the son of man and that the ancient of days truly will deliver all things and the end time will deliver all things to you and I thank you that God, you are restraining yourself you are restraining yourself so that every last Christian will come to faith. And what we do, just pray that you would come quickly, Lord. We pray that we would do as you did, Christ, that we would not stay on the mountain, that we would go down into the brokenness of this world, bringing light, bringing truth, bringing gospel. Oh, Lord, please use this church. Jesus, thank you that you used the disciples because if you use them, then you can use us. And Lord, we, we, we stand in the same place feeling like we don't have access to the power, Lord. And I know it's because of our faith, so I pray for greater faith in this place. I pray for greater faith in our church. I pray that we would believe you to a greater degree, that we would know without a doubt that you are who you said you are and you're gonna do what you said you're gonna do. Lord, we want to trust you. So Spirit, we just invite you into this church in a greater way. Not for our glory, Lord, but for yours. We thank you for your word this morning, God. We pray that we would go accordingly and that it would rest on our ears, that it would be pushed down into our hearts. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys have a great day. Lord bless you.